Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following is a presentation of the Force Center podcast feed. From the center of the galaxy, this is the Force Center podcast feed, and this episode of the Force Center podcast feed is a deep dive. This week, we're deep diving into the book from a certain point of view, The Empire Strikes Back. But only the second half, because we already dove into the first half last week. I'm Joseph Scripture. I'm Ken Knapsack, happy to do some doving and some diving (laughs) into the uh, other 20 uh, stories, essays, speeches, memories, thoughts. One-act plays, all those things that are in this book. Uh, before we get to that, though, we remind you today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook, download an 830-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash 4 Center. 
Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And we have a four center recommends, Joseph. Today we are uh, we are going back in time. That's right. We are recommending the book Ahsoka by E.K. Johnston. Why? Well, for reasons that should be obvious if you spend even a millisecond on social media. It is an Ahsoka time in the fandom, so we recommend you check out Ahsoka by E.K. Johnston. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash center. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash center for your free audiobook. Check it out on us. Ken, let's just dive right into it. We got 20 stories to discuss uh, we enjoyed discussing the first half of the book, and here we are into the second half of the book, providing all sorts of different perspectives on the second half, basically, of the movie, The Empire Strikes Back. We start with the story, Lord Vader Will See You Now, by John Jackson Miller. This is a fan-favorite character who has shown up in books and comics, and hopefully someday on the screen, Ray Sloan. Uh, having a little conference with Vader and so much more. What did you think about this story? Yeah, I was anticipating this one without a doubt. And one of the reasons I was anticipating was John Jackson Miller getting to write Ray Sloan again. He's the one who kind of introduced her to the world as Captain Ray Sloan all the way back in 2014. Remember that? A new dumb. Uh, I'm going to have to revisit that novel uh, now with uh, six plus years of Star Wars canon in my heart. But anyways, I, I, I did like this one. I liked seeing uh, what it did. That had some, uh, you know, you're always looking for little tiny kind of canon answers or, or you know, canon connections, but answers. And this one kind of, this linking to the bounty hunter call uh, of Piet and, and the need to call the bounty, bounty hunters was this little detail I actually liked because I have thought about that even, even back as a kid. Like, what did they, they just got these bounty hunters on Rolodex? How do they know them? Why do they need them? How do they feel? So, I had that. One of the things I, I love that this kind of did is it, it provided a little bit of explanation uh, for Ray Sloan being on, quote, the back burner, right? She's not around for the movies for obvious reasons created years later, but she's there in the story. And there was some uh, good to me, just like, okay, that tracks, that can, that can track for me is why she wasn't front and center. And then because I felt she was out of the center of the Empire action, it was easier for her to... To, for, for her not to see the truth of the empire, if that makes sense, as she grows in that area. And I think and by the time you end up in Aftermath, uh, her views of the empire, what it did for her as a child and why she wanted to join it and how the empire didn't sync up with that spirit in a way leads to some of her big decisions. And I thought some of that was all the way through this. Yeah, I thought it was uh, well supported that idea in aftermath of like realizing how much the of the empire is this uh, Sith weird evil magician uh, and how much that's polluted it and maybe if you strip that from it it would the these core ideas of of order and taking care of people would maybe work and that worked well here with how much she was like absolutely aware of who Vader was and to be afraid of him but wasn't all in on all of the kind of weird activities around him. I love that we know that she's in Vader's meditation chamber and she's just like why is Piet cowering along the wall of this weird chamber with this weird egg thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love that. Uh, I love that it did. Yeah, sometimes I don't like the stories that are like, let me explain this. But for some reason, this worked for me. I think it's because the kind of more technical side of the Empire and, and Ray Sloan kind of representing that. Somebody was like, I know the rules. I follow them and I know how to cover my butt the way an Imperial needs to. Uh, that it worked for me. I like the explanation of how why she wasn't at the Hoth battle. Um, mm -hmm. I liked uh, like that it's that story that happens. 
uh, with Vader with Imperials where you have to uh, impress him. And Ray Sloan, one of the reasons we like the character is because she is hyper competent. So I think it worked for me, this story that she goes out and she figures out that something's not right here, finds the Minox uh, floating that must have come out of an Exogorth and they were shot by blasters so that we know that <laughs> these things that we know just float up out of uh, Exogorth when they open their mouth, which is beautiful and gross, yeah. means that not only uh, is the Empire off track, but it makes sense to me that Vader go says, and I think um, I think this is always kind of what I've filled in my headcanon as a kid of like, Vader realizes, okay, Solo knows all these tricks, all these smugglers tricks, all these rogues tricks. My uptight little uh, Imperials are yeah. not going to find him. I need hunters who speak his language. I need bounty hunter types. And the fact that Sloan is like, look, I know his type. I know the kind of tricks he's pulling makes sense for Vader to not only be angry at his I- Imperial uh, uh, dudes and uh, in, in people uh, for failing him, but realizing I need somebody who kind of speaks the, the solo language to get him. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, and just I, this, at the end of it, uh, this was a, another great, addition to the the Ray Sloan canon as you start to just piece her and piece it together and put her in different spots of the galaxy. Uh, I felt satisfied as, as a Ray Sloan fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that button because I was, obviously this is mm-hmm. a story where Ray is kind of struggling to, uh, to get what she wants. And I love the beat towards the ends where she's says she's tired of not being seen and, and takes the risk of speaking up and, you know, without much commentary, Vader just gives her uh, the vigilance and I love Piet whining like that was supposed to go to my nephew. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's a great continuation of a lot of storytelling we get within the empire of there are really highly competent people like Ray Sloan and Vader rewards those people or veers. And then there are a bunch of people who just play the politics or have money uh, and, and mm-hmm. just kind of fall into place. And I, I thought that was a really great twist on that idea within the empire. Yeah. It keeps in line with, with who we know Ray Sloan to be going back to her childhood too. So there you go. We always want more Ray Sloan and, and we got it in a good way. Yeah. Delivered well. So we'll move on to the next story, which is Vergence by Tracy Dion. Uh, this was the perspective of the cave on Dagobah, the dark side tree cave. Uh, this was basically the cave thinking about its uh, old memories, its ancient memories, its uh, relationship with Yoda, and then experiencing its uh, visit from Luke Skywalker. What did you think about this one, Ken? So, the, so I liked it. I really did. It won me over. And credit to the author, Tracy Dion, for, for, for doing that because... The, this you and I have talked often on air and off about these from a certain point of view books that you, you're going to have some big swings of styles, some perspectives that maybe you're like, I did not need to know what the Minoc thought about uh, the galaxy. Uh, but now I got a story of the Tauntaun and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So when I started to read this one, because remember last week we were talking about what we were looking forward to. And I was like, oh, I like this one because it's got it's got Luke inside Vader's helmet and it's probably something to do with that. That's a, that's an important part of Star Wars, man, that that Empire story there in the Dagobah cave. And then when I was like, oh, wait, this is the cave. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You got to win me over, man. I can be pretty stubborn on some of that stuff. And and she did. Or, 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 or Tracy Dion did. Um, won me over. The, the cave won me over. Only because it just 
was spiritual. It was mystical. It, it, it prompted thoughts and, and, and conversations in my mind. It brought in some of the stuff um, with, with Yoda and Qui-Gon on Dagobah. And it has one of my, so I love the, you know, what's Luke saying, what's in there, uh, only what you take with you, says Yoda, right? I, I just think that's, that's just some s- simple philosophy that goes deep and needs to be heard a lot in a lot of things in life. And I, I think when you watch or read any new Star Wars story, so same with me, I always need to tell myself, what's in that movie? Only what you take with you. Be careful. So by building up that, there's this one of my favorite little Star Wars quotes here. I, I wrote this down. The boy brought his lightsaber, didn't he? And now he creates a reason to use it. I really like that. That's one of those makes you things. You and I are obsessed with uh, finding out what it means to be a Jedi, right? What it really means and, and how that can go wrong or what you can do better and what Luke could do better. I like that one. Uh, it just kind of resonated with me. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. I think it, it goes to Luke's journey with violence and pacifism. And if you you show a sword to the world, you will probably get a sword back, which I think is something that he literally discovers in this cave. But it also goes deeper to his idea of what a Jedi is and therefore what does uh, a lightsaber symbolize. And to him, in this moment, he's still thinking, a Jedi is a warrior. I need to be a warrior so I can kill the bad guy, Darth Vader. And that's that's the lightsaber. It is not a symbol of defense. It is not a symbol of selflessly uh, shielding others from harm. It is Luke not yet understanding. And in that moment, the lightsaber is a symbol of attack. Yeah. In the yeah. cave gets to pull that out. Yeah, I'm with you. I really love this one. Um it was definitely a like, okay, to hear the cave's thoughts uh, is is a fun, weird thing. Where is it going to go? For me, it was so in line with the Star Wars philosophy that I like. I, I like some of the storytelling about uh, what it is to join the cosmic force, uh, that it's not linear, uh, To that once you have passed into the cosmic force, you are aware of everything that has ever been and everything that might be. You are of the moment, but you are also not of the moment. You are both the ocean and a drop in the ocean, these kind of much larger uh, philosophical ideas. So I love that idea that this cave is a virgins. It it is, you know, just full of the force and it appears to lean toward the dark side. Um, And so it has this very different awareness and it only started to become aware of the idea of linear time by all of these different force users, you know, coming with their baggage yeah. <laughs> and wanting to see things. And I love that it's broken di- down that over time, the, the cave learns about time, thoughts, memories, and then fear. And then the cave's like, fear, this is what it's all about for me. Uh, it's such the Star Wars philosophy. And, you know, we can see that just from watching Empire Strikes Back, from watching the Mirror Cave in Last Jedi, that, you know, there are these virgences that pull your own fears out of you and then show them to you. Uh, and then this great idea, I think this is what really sold it to me of tons of fun details, but this idea that Yoda would, would, you know, be brought there to be visited by the spirit of, uh, of Qui-Gon, which we saw in the Clone Wars. And then this revelation that he's there on Dagobah and he keeps going back to the cave. Every few orbits is the, is the cave itself thinks, Mm -hmm. uh, and that Yoda would see it not just as this one time thing, but that this is a tool. This is a way to overcome my fears. And I love the way that it, it breaks down what Yoda's fears are, that when he first came to the cave, his uh, fear was all for others, for the fear of the Jedi Order falling, which is the vision he sees in the, in the Clone Wars. And I love that when he visits again, right before starting to train Luke, 
that the cave's like, ah, he's so full of fear. He, it, look, look, Duke, here's Dooku falling. Here's, you know, uh, losing Anakin. And Yoda's just like, yeah, those are old fears. I, I, I can deal with them. Uh, and we get, we get the great, uh, scene of Luke and how easy his fears are to manifest. But I love that it's his, it's his relation. It's the cave's relationship with Yoda that causes the cave to change. And this idea that even this dark side cave, its mind can be opened into different ideas because, uh, is a, the, uh, quote says discovers a concept that it can't shape into terror alliance and that, that just kind of the shock of like, wait, Yoda's using me as a teaching tool. I'm not something just to strike fear and to upset people and cause them to doubt themselves. I thought that's what people wanted for me. Like, Oh, that's that I can be used. Fear can become a strength. (laughs) Weird. And that that's really powerful and cool. Yeah. There's a great line. And so for millennia, there was only one kind of entrant. Those who seek me, resist me and flee. I watched them run with my belly full, a beautiful, just haunting in a way. And, and they resist, uh, I don't know. And, and to see, uh, where it ends up this lesson you make, cause the, 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 you mentioned the time thoughts, memories, and fear. That's kind of the, how the story's presented to us a little bit of the framework of the writing. And it ends with that word Alliance and how, what you just said, just like, Oh, it's, a, it's the cave has learned. I thought it was really powerful and emotional. It was, this is a very spiritual entrant into this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in the word alliance is an important word in Star Wars, and it was fun to see it in this different way because it wasn't like friendship, kindness, hope. It was this idea of like, uh, he, Yoda didn't cause me to do anything that I don't normally do, but the the nature of the relationship has changed by his presence. It's really cool. Yeah, did you? I, you like? I, I, you mentioned it. I love this idea. Uh, how did you feel about Yoda once there, kind of going back, and the dance continues as the cave says, because it just makes Yoda's time there a little more active for me. Not that I had a problem with yoga, y- yoga or yoga, <laughs> yoga or Yoda or yogurt sitting there, uh, uh, just kind of minding his time and meditating. But it, it was real. That, that makes it um, stuff going on there, a little active for Yoda. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different storytelling about how Yoda and Obi-Wan spent their time. And, you know, some of it's canon, some of it's canon adjacent, some of it's kind of up to interpretation and headcanon. But I do like that it it does feel like Yoda really is like, he really absorbs the, I was leading the Jedi Order, I feel like I failed, and I need to take that responsibility by really understanding where I went wrong. And that's, yeah, you know, if the time is right and... Luke or Leia, hopefully Leia comes to me. Maybe I'll train them. But for now, my journey is to face my own demons and overcome them if there's any hope for the future, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think there is some of that with Obi-Wan as well, absolutely, in my head canon. But he's also, I think, got a more active task of like, I must watch over the child. And right. that, that the subtle differences between Yoda and Obi-Wan's journey, I think, come out in the advice that they give Luke in Return of the Jedi. And this was really supportive of that to me. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Tooth in Claw by Michael Kogi. I apologize. I'm not entirely sure on the pronunciation of the last name. So I'll say Michael Kogi. Tooth in Claw is a Bosque adventure. 
he is uh, getting the information that Vader, thanks to partially to Ray Sloan, is putting out the call for bounty hunters to go after Han and Chewie. But first, he's trying to finish another job where he is going to finally get his hands on this uh, uh, Wookiee freedom fighter, the Chainbreaker. But wait, there's a twist or two or three. Ken, what did you think about this one? Uh, a unique and unexpected story. I'm not someone that goes around needing or wanting a lot of Bosque adventures, but uh, there's always a danger in uh, going into the cave with what you want in a Star Wars story. So this uh, this uh, came around the bend and, and, and surprised me and how much I actually enjoyed it. Uh, the the reveal, the Chainbreaker reveal, which is, dun, 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 it's actually not a Wookiee, it's, it's a Transdotian, and actually his sister. Huh? What? <laughs> his sister that he failed to fully eat as a child what yeah <laughs> um i liked it man and it pushed beyond pushed beyond the i like the trans transdotion wookie feud that's in star wars right uh feud is is a nice way to say it i guess you could say but you know that they're they're they are on opposite ends there um but i like that it, this story pushed beyond that which can just be surface level Cannon fodder, Transdotions hunt Wookiees. Wookiees don't like Transdotions cycle repeat, cycle repeats. This pushed beyond it in an interesting way. And it's about found family, which is always important in Star Wars. Yeah, uh, this is uh, also on my list of super love. Like if I pull down the book just to read a random story, this is one of the ones I'd want to reread. Bosk is one of my favorite bounty hunters. He has been since I was a little kid, and that action figure was so weird, and his blaster was so weird, and his little claws had to <laughs> roll together in this weird way to hold his blaster. And just uh, I've always loved Bosk uh, and enjoyed the storytelling with him in Clone Wars, enjoy playing him uh, in uh, the, the old video game there. Uh, the recent one, and uh, the the uh, thing that I loved about this story is a lot of the the stories in these books are sort of right around the corner from a story we know or a slightly different perspective. I love that this is just like, hey, this is in the grand scheme of Star Wars a relatively major character, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, um, in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Bosk is a well known, well loved character, uh, and here's just an adventure. And I'd be down for that. Of Cool. I'll spend some time with uh, Boss just uh, bounty hunting. So I was all on board. And then it just gave so much more depth to Trandoshan society and to their battle with the Wookiees. It, it was just yeah. fast-paced, great movement, great, uh, you know, advantage of uh, Star Wars is a place that can be just, like, fun and bizarre. And so it, he's on this ship of the Chainbreaker that is, mostly made out of uh, of wood uh, from Kashyyyk, which just made it, you know, beautiful and cool. Uh, be, the ship's name is Lissoir, uh, made of uh, wood, and then it, it has a tree nursery inside so that young Wookiees can play. And, like, that's just, like, great Star Wars world building. And then as he's running around, he's thinking about his past and about how much his dad <laughs> hates him, Kratosk, even though he did the Trandoshan Society thing of, like, he was the strongest of his clutch, and therefore he was, uh, he was uh, encouraged to hunt uh, his his siblings and eat them and he's been told that story by his father and he's he's so proud of it and mm-hmm. at first I'm just thinking this is great this is just great Trandoshan society world building and what a great picture of Bosk that his father both loves him and is disappointed by him no wonder <laughs> he's not the greatest guy of course uh, so and then it goes to that great place of not only having the twist of oh the chain breaker is his sister that he failed to fully eat as a child, it was gross and scary and weird and fun. 
Um, Learned that she was mentored by Chewie's father, Adam Chitkuk. But then it goes even deeper to this idea of the Trandoshan society hunts Wookiees and justifies it by saying the Wookiees do all these awful things. And his sister, the Chainbreaker, has discovered, no, they don't. It's it's propaganda. It's fear. Uh, you are you are raised to be afraid of Wookiees so that we can justify our our cultural ways of hunting them. And then that's just like some great depth in this ongoing Trandoshan Wookiee battle that's been going on in various versions of canon for decades. And it gives like new, maybe it's in Legends and I don't know it, but it gives some great life to that mm-hmm. and great complexity. And it makes it, this is one of the, the uh, stories that ties to the actual Empire Strikes Back of she lets Boss go with the promise that he will stop hunting Wookiees. And he promises knowing that I'm absolutely immediately going to go after Chewbacca. And so it gives this great tension to like, okay, well, is there more to this story? Is he going to be hunted by his sister now? You know? Oh yeah. We get that follow up. Maybe we'll get that in the return of the Jedi one. <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, she will. Uh, I wrote down her name, uh, Dashanella Wook. Maybe she will uh, come for him in Jabba's palace. But I, yeah, so I really love this one. This is a highlight for me. Yeah. No, it's an example of, you know that connecting to lore is one thing, uh, but going beyond it and finding the things that you can learn from the lore and and and, and stories you can tell with it is, is, is this is a great example of it. And, and again, one that caught me by surprise. Uh, you love Bosk. I don't dislike Bosk. I just I don't spend a lot of time with Bosk, um, and I liked it. And I, and his sister being you know she's in a mechanical chair because you know uh, he did not finish the job when he tried to uh, uh, devour her as a, as as a, as a Eggling, what what is it? What, what they, I'm saying their, their clutch, I think, is is what their their group of uh, of birthed creatures are of Trandoshans. Yeah. And of her four limbs, three were stumps. A single arm she did possess was short and small, and just kind of a uh, a, a different kind of character. Um, and and I I enjoyed her strength came from uh, from within in that regard, and what she learned, and who she allowed herself to become. Powerful Star Wars stuff. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot about just uh, in my notes here, uh, the Wookiee Rodoluru, uh, yeah. who is a, a weapons designer who is uh, tortured by the Empire and he's shaved, has no hair. It's it's oh, yeah. man, some brutal stuff. But it, it is all in the service of uh, showing the Trandoshans as people who need to work through some stuff. And it really highlights, you know, the Wookiees as one of the heroic uh, mm-hmm. groups of the galaxy. Continues to be those Wookiees. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moving along. Uh, I won't spend as many as much time on every story, but I particularly love that one. Uh, moving on to Stet by Daniel Jose Older. Uh, this is a great look at the partnership of Zuckus and for LOM, uh, but it is told from a really different perspective. It is told from an article uh, that has been written and edited, and uh, some discoveries are being made by the editor as we go. Ken, what did you think of this one? Uh, I, I love Dan, Daniel Jose Older as a, as a uh, writer, as an author. Looking forward to his high republic stuff. This one didn't uh, grab me as much, but I also I'm not I'm not a huge uh, Zuckus and Forlom as I say. Uh, you know, there's the great battle, LOM and Forlom. Um, but this was a great big creative swing for the fences that I enjoyed. This is the most memorable in terms of just 
format and how it was written and how it was approached in this whole book. I'm, I'm always going to remember this one and want to revisit it to explore their relationship. They're a fun team. So there's a lot I liked about this in here, uh, a lot about them um, working. So so why, why I didn't necessarily, when I say it didn't grab me, I still, even as I look at it now, the, the editor notes are funny, insightful, like you said, and I always want Star Wars writers and creators to take those big swings. And uh, that's where I landed on this one. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm with you. I really liked uh, the little bit of time we got to spend with Zuckus and 4LOM. Uh, I like Zuckus referring uh, to themselves in the third person. That was awesome. Uh, I think coming right off that Bosk story, I think a part of me was just like, I just kind of want to spend some quality time with Zuckus in 4LOM. But I did like what was there. I liked uh, getting that peek into, uh, again, Imperial Propaganda, where TK7 was like, well, we can't say that. <laughs> so let's edit that out. All the editor bits were, you know, really, really funny. And it for me, it just it took a while for the picture of the actual, you know, the story of what was truly happening to come out. Uh, and I like the actual story that ultimately this writer, uh, Perazine Parappa, uh, who has this big bounty hunter uh, mech suit, um, was using the, the paper, which normally does Imperial Puff pieces, to lure Zuckus, uh, jump out of his uh, mech suit because he's a tiny alien, a Frisnoth. Uh, and then hide on him so he could go expose the Empire working with bounty hunters is like that, that was ultimately like a, a fun and interesting story. It was fun. It was fun. I always uh, sometimes uh, when where too many things are behind the trees of scenes that I'm familiar with, I can uh, I, I, it doesn't um, I don't gravitate to those stories as much. So but I did enjoy what you're describing, just a, a bigger picture in this investigative reporter doing doing the good work of the galaxy. Yeah, and I mean, we've had that with that uh, story in the Legends of Luke Skywalker book of uh, that tiny creature that was, uh, you know, hiding on people and riding them. <laughs> yeah. it, it does get to the point where, like, do does every character in Star Wars have thousands of <laughs> tiny creatures riding on them, reporting on them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving on then to our next story by uh, it's called Wait for It by Zoraida Cordova. Uh, this is one that just does kind of march through, uh, Boba Fett getting the meeting, going to the meeting and giving some thought to how he is going to approach this, how he's going to deal with the other bounty hunters. What did you think of this one, Ken? I, I enjoyed this one a lot because I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating some more Boba Fett storytelling coming down the line. So to get any insight, uh, any more insight into this legendary stoic mass character, it works for me. And there's some little details I loved in here. Um, the Describing the executor hallways uh, and, and, and describing that Super Star Destroyers as having hallways, I should say, designed to make you feel like there's no way out. Like the Empire is a casino. Once you're in, you're in. No <laughs> clocks, no windows. You are ours. And that, that was a powerful kind of description there. And to see it through uh, Boba Fett's uh, eyes uh, and this idea, there's the, this concept of the Empire the Imperials would work better if they're not run by on fear. And uh, that's, that's an interesting comment too, as well. Not that I want the empire to work better. I'm, I'm good with it being toppled, but um, I like that kind of stuff there. Yeah. Uh, Boba would do well on, on Thrawn's ship where he works by encouragement. <laughs> that's right. Encouragement. Uh, and then uh, I thought I saw the look into what Boba Fett or who Boba Fett was and what he feels he is now. Uh, memories of the crack claw gang there. I liked a lot of that. Yeah, I think I really love this one too because it was just much like the boss story. It was just quality time inside the head of a you know a, a relatively major character again from Star Wars. Uh, we've talked a lot about it with the the Mandalorian stuff. I'm really intrigued by Boba Fett. I think I had the bias where 
the sort of headcanon that I have about the character, kind of connecting the dots of, of what we've seen of him in canon, it was exactly what this story was. So this was just a little bit of like, it, it was well-written and it was fun. And it was also like, this is what I want to hear. This is the Boba Fett that lives in my imagination. And I, I hope we get to see more of it. I like that the big picture of him is, you know, he's sarcastic and shrewd and wants to get inside his target's heads. He knows that the um, armor uh, makes him mysterious. He knows the power of anonymity. I like the uh, the passage about people trying to taunt him to make his mask off, but he kind of, to take his mask off, but he kind of knows it's because they're frightened of not knowing what's underneath it. Uh, okay. And I just, I really like that it connected all these dots from what we've seen in canon to him being a young kid and uh, remembering back to running with Bosk and that he's upset that Bosk calls him Boba like he's still a kid. And he's like, you know, you can say Boba Fett or Fett, but I'm yeah. not Boba anymore. It was I really like that. Uh, I love the random detail that Dengar wears Felucian incense to cover his smell from not washing. Yes. <laughs> it's just a random detail. But then I really like, so we, we got that connection to this kid who grew up rough with these uh, bounty hunters who used to need to be basically mentored and protected by Bosk, but now was not only his equal, but probably, you know, better than him. And that's the general Star Wars canon that, yeah, Boba Fett is the badass bounty hunter in this era. And I really love how it all kind of tied together at the end with the actual plot of him playing on the, like, hey, the the crates clogged, days were great, Dengar and Boss, too bad things went south on Corellia. You know, hey, let's work together, and then just gives him the wrong information to get him off uh, off his scent. Uh, and then the, the way it comes together, when he's thinking at the end about himself of, like, he's not that kid with the same face as a, a million other people anymore, which is, I love that, attaching to the fact of how he feels about being, he's different, but he is a clone. Uh, and then talking about how he has let his anger sharpen him, which is a very dark side way. And that specific idea of he lets himself see every target is the Jedi who got away. I've always felt that was the power of having the Django Boba relationship and attack the clones, that powerful shot of him bringing the helmet to his head of that's the moment that defines this character. That's why he's, you know, not just protecting Jabba. He wants to kill a Jedi and seeing Luke is like, great someone i can take it out on uh and, and i love all those threads being uh pulled together in this story yeah and just uh you know when you're writing a kind of a shorter story i i think you need at a hook but like a good framework right you, you tell it it's, it is a one-act play to me and, and i this one begins with boba fett ain't patient but it ends with i mean the title of it is wait for it but now all boba fett had to do was wait and just not that again it's weird to say boba fett's learning and growing he's not a He's not a nice man. No. But it's interesting to me. And it's and it shows the potential of this character going forward. I understand some trepidation for maybe spending time with the this character that some people have. But I think, and because I'm, again, I'm not, uh, other than the alpha, I didn't grow up a big Boba Fett fan either. Um, but I think this is this is interesting stuff. And this, this kind of, for me, I was like, sold, got it. And it was a beautiful little story about Boba Fett. Yeah, I think that's really what I loved about it is that I did grow up loving the unknowable, totally mysterious, totally cool Boba Fett with the coolest armor in the world and the best ship and all that. And then some people have not liked him as more has been added on. But I just think there's so much interesting ideas to get out of all of the bits of character that we've learned about him. And for me, this story worked 
is his role in Empire Strikes Back. And for me, it was a pamphlet of here are the things about Boba Fett that are actually interesting that we can go with when we tell more stories. So I was I was thrilled with this Boba Fett pamphlet. Yeah. So you want to hear more Boba Fett stories. <laughs> exactly. And I do. Uh, all right. We will move on to the next story. Standard Imperial Procedure by Sarwat Chata. Uh, this is the story of uh, kind of uh, Boba Fett's journey continuing. It's the story of Carl Ashen, a 20-year vet of the uh, Empire, uh, who is demoted from engineering to waste disposal and ends up getting caught in the dumping of all of the trash that allows uh, Han to escape and allows Boba Fett to catch up with him and all the shenanigans therein. What did you think of this one? So there's some stuff in here that uh, triggers some fears for me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, being stuck in space in a ship knowing that you're going to slowly die every time. You're like, Ken, that's a real specific fear. It comes from an old Commodore 64 game where you could manage the NASA and manage hiring of scientists and budgets and launching a shuttle to the to the space station then you have a little eva pod and you move around there's probably some older four center listeners who are like i played that game too cap and if you didn't manage it it's like it's like a role-playing nasa game if you didn't manage it and, and and keep track of who was in space the astronaut in the eva could die and it would show up on your roster as deceased and here i am eight or nine playing this game going wait, you just slowly die in space in this pod? And I, I, I used to hate that. Um, and, uh, and this one ends with that kind of idea, stuck in the stars forever. <laughs> I was like, it, oh boy, I'm getting itchy fingers. I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's kind of what made it great. I, I, I really liked this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like this one from the, uh, you gave some different perspective on the Empire. I, I haven't seen as much storytelling of the class system within the Empire. I love that we got in, I was, you know, hooked immediately by the uh, lower level officers have to make, eat the scientifically made sludge and then <laughs> the uh, higher level officers are sitting at tables, you know, doing their fine dining with the shack steak, uh, right. which I have actually had at uh, Galaxy's Edge, which was quite good, quite good. Um so I really like that perspective. I like that this guy had fallen from that higher level to the lower level and was willing to whisk it all to just go and defiantly sit at the table and order fancy food and wine. Uh, and yeah, the, the, I like how Boba Fett just ran in the background of like, I'm, I'm going to sneak the, the slave one on the ship because I think this ship is, you know, how Solo is going to try to hide. And then Carl Ashen kind of figures it out. And gets just chucked into space by Boba Fett. And I think I think there's a part of me that's like, this is, Star Wars is a brutal galaxy. The yeah. Empire and Bounty Hunters are brutal people. So in a way, even though it was disturbing, I kind of like a story where it's just like, yeah, there's not going to be a sequel. Because this guy got caught up in the Empire and Bounty Hunters and he died. He got it killed is, horribly. Yeah, it is a horror story. In my notes, I put a horror story. Um, I, I, I liked all the Fett stuff is detailed and just kind of the answers of how did we know emotionally how Fett found the Falcon now, now to actually get some nuts and bolts answers of how he, he got slave one into the garbage or was out there in the back. Uh, and the fact that this character kind of figured out too, I was like, did I, do I like that or not? I, I'm okay with it. It worked very well in the story. I wanted, I want Fett to figure it out all on his own, but, but it's, so it's good. But what I really love, there's some stuff in here. You mentioned just kind of inside the em, em, empire, always fascinating. Just as you and I are diving into what it means to be a Jedi, uh, the empire and, and, what what makes up uh, the, their ranks um, class system like you said but there's this whole thing about 
uh, a group of them not, not really believing Alderaan as it happened, a different kind of story, a different kind of take. And, and there's this kind of touches on this, I, this theme uh, I have of what I kind of call the comfort of conspiracy. Um, mm. Not that everything, uh, you know, there aren't some things behind curtains. I can, I can, I can follow a good conspiracy theory, but I always, there's an idea that I have of just, sometimes it's easier to believe the conspiracy than to face the actual horrible thing that happened. And for a lot of people to, you know, not that that the Alderaan blew up on its own, but just like what it was, it wasn't what it is. And what it is, is the empire wiped out a planet and for all your, yeah, but then the rebels blew up all the people on the Death Star, which is, you know, you know, we can dive into that later on, I guess, but, and it's a motivator for other people, but, but you know what I mean? Just like the, the fact that there's this kind of conversation in the book of the total lack of caring in the empire and the, and not seeing what is actually there and just kind of buying into a conspiracy that's been sold to you and not facing the horrors that you're a part of. Uh, that kind of resonates for me when we're looking at the empire. Yeah. And I thought there's a great bookend that early in the, this horror story, as you so rightly call it, that he hears uh, some of that propaganda, like we heard in solo, of, you know, the empire, see the stars, and then that fulfilling the propaganda at the end of like, I am floating in this piece of garbage and I'm going to suffocate and I'm just going to be floating out here among the stars. Thanks, empire. <laughs> the, Sorry, my dad joined the Navy to see the world and he ended up stationed on Guam for three years. So there you go. Nothing against Guam, but it's not quite the world. Guam is a part of the world, right? (laughs) Come see this specific part of the world. Uh, Yeah, so I really enjoyed that one. Moving on to There Is Always Another by Mackenzie Lee. This is an Obi-Wan story. This is Obi-Wan appearing on Dagobah as Luke is getting ready to leave. Uh, It goes through Obi-Wan's dialogue uh, that we know from the movie as he and Yoda try to talk Luke into staying. And uh, since Luke is not going to stay anyway, trying to give him some good advice, but then goes deep into Obi-Wan's thoughts. Uh, Ken, uh, what were your thoughts on this one? All right, here we go. Obi-Wan stuff. Yep, yep. Um, (laughs) And Yoda stuff and, and Dagobah stuff, a lot of, lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that you and I like and like to dive into. At the end of the day, I really did love where this story went. Um, it starts from a, a just a, a different kind of Obi-Wan in the sense of it presents Obi-Wan as kind of angry, kind of upset, kind of snarky. Spent a lot of time looking back and a lot of time wondering what he should have done better, what he didn't, what he believed in, what he accepted, all those kind of things. And he starts from, I feel, I'll say angry, but, but, you know, frustrated, a lot of things. Um, but I like what it ends up doing and I like some of the details and insights it provided. Yeah. Yeah. I am agreement with in agreement with you. I, I like, I'd say about 80% of this, the tone for Obi-Wan isn't quite right for kind of how Obi-Wan lives in, in my head canon, at least like, like not this part of the, the timeline for me. Um, and and it, that's the thing with these stories. Some of them just invent characters we've never met and they have a fun thing. And, and sometimes they dive into a character that we really know well and flesh out perspective. And sometimes that works great if it aligns with your headcanon and sometimes it kind of bumps in your headcanon. And I, I don't think I have any uh, moral or legal right to Obi-Wan. I don't think we should get too possessive as fans, but then sometimes you just got to be honest that you have headcanon and sometimes it doesn't match. Um, so for me, there was a ton of things I liked in this, but I think what my my thought about the tone was, I think everything that Obi, Obi-Wan thinks, everything he wrestles with, I think are things that he 
thinks and wrestles with and should uh, yeah. in his time on Tatooine when he is coming to some sort of peace with all of this. Uh, so I think for me, by the time that he has passed into the Force, while he certainly does have frustrations with Luke and the pain of seeing Anakin in Luke and the pain of seeing Luke maybe make a choice that both Obi-Wan and Yoda know is dangerous and wrong, I believe all that. But I think at this point in his existence, particularly in the Cosmic Force, I think Obi-Wan has a bit more hope for Luke. I think he's the one who's advocating to Yoda of like, no, no, I have faith in the boy. Um, so I think he has a bit more peace and perspective in death and a little bit more hope for Luke. And so I think that's, for me, I like grumpy Obi-Wan. I like Obi-Wan questioning uh, his choices. I like Obi-Wan really taking responsibility uh, for Anakin's fall. Uh, but I think, you know, his grumpiness level at this point in his timeline, it should be at like an eight in, in my head canon. In this story, it was like at an 11. He turns back to us just for a moment, and there he is again. The dumb, beautiful son of my dumb, beautiful friend could never be talked <laughs> out of anything he said his mind to. That's both something I love and something I went like, whoa, ouch, babe, ouch. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I, like I said, I, for the most part, I don't disagree with any of the Obi-Wan thoughts. I just, I question a little bit for me the the tone. Um, a couple things I loved uh, as he was going through it all. Um, I love this moment where he's talking about training Anakin early on and how uh, restless he was and worried about it and sitting up in bed one night and just suddenly realizing he's from a desert planet. He doesn't know how to swim. How, how do I teach him how to swim? That's a that's such a beautiful moment. That's such a great picture into uh, this larger idea that I really like that, that, you know, again, I'm biased. It's kind of lived in my head canon of one of the ways I think about Obi-Wan. So it was fun for me to see in this story this big idea that Obi-Wan never got to find himself as a Jedi Knight, as an adult, that he went right from student to master and how much of Obi-Wan's character that we know uh, did that inform. I love that idea. I think that's great. Um, I really like the idea that Obi-Wan, after the fall, after Anakin's fall, after the Jedi Order's fall, would really question uh, Jedi rules, Jedi dogma. Uh, there's a couple passages where he he's mad at himself because he, he feels like he failed Anakin because he just blindly followed what he was taught. And, mm. and I think, I think for me that Obi-Wan definitely did not question the order as much as he should have. I think he was a, a company person who, who wanted to follow the rules and, and be the Jedi the way the, the Jedi instruct. Um, it, but this was maybe just a little too harsh for me that he didn't believe anything that he was taught or that, he didn't question it at all because I think even in the Clone Wars animated series, Obi-Wan's a character who's always like, wait, Anakin, let's look at this from three different directions and try to figure it out. And I think like the fundamental teachings of the Jedi Order, I think he would have questioned, analyzed from every angle and said, I agree with those. And at the same time, there was a rigidity. There were mistakes in the way they treated and approached Anakin that I think he would question. But I don't think he would just say, I, I was just uh, spoon-fed these ideas, and I didn't question them at all. Yeah, yeah, there's some great stuff up. Yeah, there's some stuff up, top, but it's, again, it's it's, and I'd I'd love to spend time with Obi Wan. You know, it's he's not real, right? Damn it! Um, and asking him a little bit more about what he feels, and maybe it's sit down with the author Mackenzie Lee to figure out what M Mackenzie Lee put into the story. The Jedi Order may have died out, but their dedication to posturing theatrics is alive and well in Master Yoda. This is uh, basically referring to Yoda choosing to go to Dagobah uh, in his uh, failure, why, why Obi-Wan is on Tatooine um, 
dehydrating watching the boy. Um, I, I'm fascinated by that, but I'm also like, I, I you know, this isn't a thing of a, a criticism of like, that's not Obi-Wan. It's, I, I want to like, well, Obi-Wan, but you are this too, from a certain point of view guy, <laughs> you <do laughs> theatrics into what you do. Um, so it, it made me think about a lot of stuff. And one of the thing, one of the things I really did like about this, because I, I really, like I said, I grew to appreciate what the author was going for, is is connecting all that came before, um, in, in, in a timeline we know, in, in a story written long after this moment's on screen. Like you know, so much of Star Wars, if this if this makes sense, so much of Star Wars, you know, comes after 1980. Yeah, and George has to go back to this and everything. And sometimes, you know, you want some dots connected, not just canon dots, but emotional yeah. connections. And this does that. It tries to do that and it raises some great questions. And I liked that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, with, with the exception of, of him kind of expressing that, that he didn't question the Jedi order and followed it really blindly. I think he definitely didn't question some things he should have with the exception of that. Yeah. I, I really do agree with the emotional canon. I love yeah. that. He, uh, you know, acknowledges that, Luke's stubbornness might also come from Padme, but Padme was also, uh, much like Leia, probably better equipped to be a Jedi and kind of wishing she was the chosen one. <laughs> you know, yeah. and yeah, like, Anakin uh, was the boy king, you know, uh, in that how much better for the galaxy would that have worked out? Um, I really loved the stuff about wishing he'd helped Anakin find his own path because to me, I think that really does get to what I feel like the kind of the core Jedi Order mistakes are of just trying to great, okay, we, we have to raise you because Qui-Gon insisted on it. Now Kenobi's in, uh, insisting on it. does appear you're maybe this chosen one, uh, but didn't make any sort of bend or make any sort of concessions to try to see things his way or understand his trauma about his mother, but just was like, here's, here's the Jedi pamphlet, do it, kid. And I do believe that Obi-Wan is mad at himself for that. I think that's, that's the specific part of, of the Jedi Order that I think he should have questioned that he didn't, that I really believe him beating himself up about constantly yeah there's some i thought some powerful stuff about anakin starting from a point of really having no choice that there was no justice for the jedi coming to him you know they weren't coming to save the slaves they were coming you know essentially to take him i mean qui-gon didn't do that on purpose but gets there it is like no 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 we, we ain't saving your mom just you and what choice does anakin have at that point right what choice and then and some stuff um some stuff in there about uh, the uh, the jedi not accepting the chosen one as he was but trying to squeeze them into the mold of what they needed to be to fulfill the f- prophecy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of, co- of course, but uh, I thought that that's some of the tantalizing stuff that you, you want to dive into more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what did work really well in this moment is this is obviously a, a moment where Luke is making a rash choice uh, yeah. and a, an extremely dangerous choice. And I, I liked going behind the words that Obi-Wan said in Empire Strikes Back and experiencing Obi-Wan's pain of, hey, I've really tried to deal with these issues with Anakin and and process them and, and let go, but seeing them alive in Luke's face is, is making me go through that pain again, I think, is is was really beautiful and really great. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. In the end, in the end, uh, a fan of this one, uh, it, it got me there uh, t- uh, overall. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Uh, ultimately, big fan of it. Uh, Obi-Wan is one of those things, one of those characters for me where uh, I, I, I get <laughs> nitpicky for my own headcanon, but this is a point of view on Obi-Wan, and like I said, 80% of it I absolutely love and think it's uh, really great and really important and insightful stuff. So great job to Mackenzie Lee 
Uh, moving on to the next story, Fake It Till You Make It by Kevin Scott. This is the story of Jackson trying to make some business dealings happen at Cloud City. And then, like much of the second half of the book, having to escape Bespin. <laughs> yeah. So, Ken, what do you think of our first escape Bespin story? Uh, I tried to be better this time around. I was a little uh, distracted last week, didn't take uh, as many notes as I would have wanted. Uh, so I was trying to take more notes, pull out quotes. Here's the only thing I wrote for this one, Joseph. It's the only note I have. Okay, Kevin Scott, you win. Jackson can stay in canon. Um, <laughs> Jackson has always been an example, even long before I was on podcasts, of why I don't particularly follow the EU. And I know Jackson's from another era, 70s comics, Marvel, I, I get it. And, uh, you know, um, I just, I'd always point to it, be like, yeah, what about that? that that's so silly. Star Wars, come on. Like, I don't know. I mentioned a lot, but then a lot of, like a lot of things, you poke enough fun over time, you start developing an affinity for it. And I know Kevin Scott loves Jackson. Jackson references show up a lot in his work, including uh, in the Jedi temple challenge show. Um, so he won me over with this of just a great story. And there was this, the very kind of meta meta, uh, I should have, I should just, yeah, I should have taken better notes. Uh, a meta kind of moment where Jackson's like, look, I know I'm a rabbit, but uh, among calamari or squid, <laughs> <laughs> why can't I, why can't I be treated seriously? And I, I that, that's, it, it was like Kevin Scott was writing to me. I'm like, okay, you're right. Yeah. Let me a chance. And it was a great story. It ends up in a good spot. Yeah. I think this was what was great about this story and why I really liked it is it, it takes uh, Jackson on a Jar Jar like journey of let's take some of the real world stuff that is uh, in our conversation with this character and kind of make that what the character is about. Uh, Mm -hmm. In that Jackson is, he is absurd. And so to know that in universe of Star Wars, he's seen as absurd. I love that we start with, he is trying to dress like Lando to impress Lando to get a job. You know, I love the utter contrast of Jackson accidentally opening the door and seeing Vader at the table, which like on one hand is like, oh, the rabbit from the old comics saw Vader, right? But that, that, that meeting of the most serious of Star Wars with the sort of most absurd and fun, I think is kind of the point of this. And it builds to what you're talking about with this just great uh, Star Wars message where Jackson's species, the, the Lepi, get judged for their appearance that is strange even within the universe of Star Wars. But then ultimately when he finds himself in this horror show of trying to escape Bespin uh, and save these, uh, these Trogloffs, uh, that it's his skills that he has because of who he is, because he is a giant rabbit that ultimately save him. So I, I, it, it knocks Jackson down to build him back up. You know, and I think it's just, it's absurdity and a big warm heart in star Wars. And I think those are needed. Jackson T. Tumperaki. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah. Like again, not much more I can say about it. I like, he's a good guy. You know, he's a good leppy. He ends he's up a good leppy using skills. Um, and, a reminder, you and I love that. We just dove into the mind of Obi-Wan in an important moment of Star Wars, and we love that, but also it's a reminder of just, yep, there's also a rabbit hopping around the galaxy. Okay. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, all right, we'll move on from that one then, too. But What Does He Eat by S.A. Uh, Chakraborty. Uh, what did you think of this one? So I called this one a sleeper favorite. Maybe Ooh. because I've been watching so many damn cooking shows lately because I picked up the hobby of cooking in this lockdown. 
you know, a lot of the Favreau, Roy Choi chef shows and some of the more serious documentaries uh, uh, about cooking barbecue. Like it's, it's all there. And I've just kind of, uh, I just kind of like it. So to have uh, this being the story of executive chef Toro Sabazel is uh, right away. I was like, all right, here we go. And look, this could, this is about the dinner that we never see. That is one of those very early on from 1980 on one of those little jokes on the playground or questions or bar conversations you have about Star Wars. Was Vader going to eat? Was he just sitting there waiting? Uh, did he have a snack? Did Boba Fett come out and eat something? Like, we're at <laughs> dinner. Like, what? Uh, and it's a little detail that you could just kind of, it, it, it could become that robot chicken style joke. And, and this could have gone a, a different direction. Um, but it, it didn't. Uh, there was a lot here uh, and, and a portrait of, of heroes and those needing to be heroes uh, details about uh, this, this scene. And, and then um, uh, it just all worked for me. And then on page, uh, page 377, there was a note. Uh, I am obsessed with Lando ability. Williams is too, at the at celebration this uh, 2019 said it of just like, you know, Lando got a bad rap, but you got to trust me. Like, come on. And there's reasons I did some things and there's literally Lando, saying like people would be, you know, uh, you know, if people would tr just trust me, we'd all save a lot of time. And that's something that's close to my heart as a Lando fan. And I just like that that was kind of revealed in here. It's not about the main character, but I like that little detail too. Yeah. Yeah. These stories all together in the second half of just like how busy Lando is of just like, okay, the, the empire is coming. They want me to uh, get Han for him, but I'm going to try to make this deal. And I got so many business appointments to make with <laughs> telling all the different people, investment, different things about it and prepping yeah. them. And yeah, and this is, an, I think is great. Uh, yeah, when I started, it was like, okay, is this going to be a real uh, swing for the fences, jokey, you know, but what does he eat from the title? So it was a great, pleasant surprise. It, 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 uh, it brought me in right away. I really liked uh, Toro Sabazel. I liked that she was a Deveronian. I yep. liked that little detail where she could just stick her hand in the oven and didn't burn because I liked that. Yeah. They've established that about the uh, Deveronians. I think that is a great uh, sort of funny thing to build in universe from the, you know, original Deveronian being devil guy um, who just looked like he could absolutely walk through fire. And you know what? They can. Um, it's a great place to just kind of build out to uh, uh, that idea of being a chef in Star Wars. I loved Jogan fruit. I like the joke of uh, dumplings. Everyone across the galaxy likes dumplings. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and then and then it, it dealt with, I thought, the Vader thing in a really interesting way where she was like, he's not real. And the, then she sees mm -hmm. him. And then this Ugnat sous chef, Jerselik, uh, uh, really tries to talk her into poisoning Vader and taking that right. big risk. And I thought, well, this is ultimately a really cool story about what risks do you take when and why? And the, but what does he eat starts as a jokey title. And then when that becomes kind of the actual hinge of like, is it worth trying to poison Vader or is that just going to bring horror to myself and everyone I care about? I thought it went to a, a great, you know, kind of deep place about how difficult it actually is to challenge something like the empire and challenge something like Vader. Yeah. Great stuff. And a, a great line of, and they won't exist again. Not if some of us don't try to fight back and, and taking that this big struggle, it's not just the rebellion versus the empire. It needs to go to this level and, and why maybe it didn't stick. You and I talk about connecting the, the victory, of the battle of Endor to what we see in rise of Skywalker and how it need, need needed to really come up from the people entirely and completely. And this is an example of uh, why that's important and what you can do and what can help, whether, whether or not you're going to po poison Vader or not, there's a part to play. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and bringing the real mundane up against of just a, a great chef up against the Dark Lord of the Sith was cool. Uh, moving on to our next story, Beyond the Clouds by Lilliam Rivera. Uh, this was the story of a young 17-year-old wannabe bounty hunter on Bespin, uh, torn between trying to get a meeting with Boba Fett and joining in one of those famous Cloud City labor disputes. <laughs> what did you think of this one? Uh, this, I, this was uh, this was great. This is fine. Uh, Lillian Rivera wrote a great <laughs> story. Now, i got to be careful. I, it is, um, this one... The Star Wars, from a certain point of view, you you had a lot more characters that are like, oh, that is so and so from that shot, and and this book had a, had a lot more of like, you are brand new, and I've never heard of you, and you probably not even are in the background of um of, of Empire Strikes Back, and to my yeah. knowledge, this character has not appeared anywhere else. I was trying to think, is this a comic character, comic book character? And to my knowledge, no. So I didn't, I wasn't pulled in as much, but it is a great story. Uh, and around the myth of Boba Fett and, and some of the uh, how you view how some of these characters view the characters we know informs us about those characters from that level. It, it really did work for me, but it was just one of the many Cloud City stories that started to blend into one for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what started to become clear from these two stories and then became very clear from uh, the rest of the book that clearly, uh, you know, if authors were invited like, hey, what do you want to tell in Empire Strikes Back? Uh, that a lot of uh, people must, like me, love Bespin, love Cloud City, want to know more about it, want to know more of the the way the city works, what does it look like, who actually lives there, what do they do, what do they feel. And this is, you know, uh, one of the many stories in that vein in the book. And what I liked about it ultimately was uh, there are a couple of stories that almost feel a little bit that they're like the... Um, a little bit of a fan, what if I could live, not that the author is necessarily writing themselves into the story, but just a little bit of... Uh, there's a sort of fan relationship to me that this is a young person who kind of rejects their parents and wants to be a bounty hunter and thinks Boba Fett is cool and kind of almost follows this dark path because of that, but then realizes that, oh, I could make this maybe better choice to truly help people and that like this labor dispute is the more um, sort of uh, light side, the more like th that that's real and right now and it will help people. And then when the, um, then the stormtroopers show up that, that uh, this character, Isabella, uses the, the vibro knuckles and uses their energy to do something to fight back against the Empire. And it's interesting to have this little, like, moral dilemma of, like, do you choose to be a Boba Fett fan or do you choose to do something a little bit more immediate and helpful, like help striking workers? <laughs> Labor disputes, supply problems. Poor Lando has got it all going on there. Yeah, and, and look, that's why I say this. This is uh, was comic book-like to me, meaning... A lot of times, the Star Wars comics can go off in these little corners into a, into an not just a world, but a, literally a setting we're familiar. And instead of doing the around the corner is this, there's just something entirely separate, and it's part of the world. And I think this this works on that level. This is a well written piece. Just uh, when you when you when you got f almost 600 pages of story, um, I have to admit that sometimes if I'm like, I don't know this character, is it new? I'm not as plugged in as I maybe want to be. That's on me, but that's what the story made me uh, feel. I think that's an honest uh, observation about this book. And I think there's some stories we'll talk about in the second half where I thought they were great. But for me, they were impacted by the fact that it's so much easier to be pulled in by a character, you know, and then, you know, mm. kind of starting over with a character you don't know is sometimes uh, starting an uphill battle with reading it, uh, which is, you know, more about a reader experience than the actual quality of the story, I think. Totally. 
Uh, excellent. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back to discuss the second half of the second half of From a Certain Point of View of the Empire Strikes Back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, 
Force Center friends, make sure you're keeping up to date on all the great content from Jennifer Landa. Whether it's YouTube, Instagram, or TikTok, you whippersnappers, Force Center's own Jennifer Landa continues to bring you fun, informative, and insightful laughs and moments. Also, Jennifer brings her experience and perspective as a Star Wars-loving mother to her DIY projects, blogs, and more. So be sure to head on over to JennyLanda.com. That's J-E-N-I-L-A-N-D-A.com for articles like how to make your own Darth Maul sneakers or 10 unique Star Wars baby gift ideas. Follow Jen on Twitter and Instagram at JenniferLanda and on TikTok as JenniferLanda1138. Hey, Force Center fans, don't forget, Force Center is on YouTube. Head over there to catch up with our new show, Star Wars Show and Tell. Joseph, Jennifer, Ken, and special guests sit down and share favorite items from their own Star Wars memorabilia collections. Plus, there's the In Memoriam video series, encore presentations of Databank Brawl, and special programming all there for you, and more shows on the way. It's Force Center on YouTube. Check it out. We got 10 more stories to talk about out of 40. So we're going to dive right in. The next story is No Time for Poetry by Austin Walker. Uh, This is IG88's perspective of quality time with Dengar. This is another just little what were they doing a bounty hunter story. Ken, what did you think of this one? I do. Speaking of comic books, Dengar and IG88, I I think I'd buy that one before Forlom and and, and Zuckus. You know, (laughs) I guess it's just a matter of what you choose. There's something great about this, that even the playing with Dengar, his his accent, uh, you know, was it Simon Simon Pegg uh, does him in Clone Wars, right? Is is that what I, am I remembering? I remember Uh, his accent. I I honestly don't remember who does it. Yeah. uh, And and then obviously other people don't even the video games and everything, too. So there's just something kind of kind of fun about that. Uh, More, you know, that Mandalorian impersonating son of a uh, (laughs) details there. Dengar is fun, man. And also just a little bit of uh, Dengar getting Dengar to Jabba's palace for the special editions there. Uh, you kind of get a little canon answer there, a canon nod there as well. So I, I liked it. It didn't, uh, it, 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 no time for poetry. Th- that was a good, uh, it, the way that was worked in and the theme to the title. I like that. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, one of my favorites, but uh, it, 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 it sparked my imagination what these two could do on their own. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I, and I Googled, yes, Simon Pegg does do uh, Dengar in at least some episodes of Clone Wars. So a nice pull. Uh, yeah, I, I really like this one because, again, I, I, you know, am of the era that th- these bounty hunters were these weirdos that I had action figures of and I dreamed of all the time. And it's really fun for me to just have a story uh, about them. And I think this one benefited, again, from the amount of storytelling that's built up around Dengar. And also, honestly, a little bit of IG-11. I, I think IG-88 was his own character, but I could hear a little bit of that voice of that kind of uh, droid. And I love the, like, you know, I turned my head even though I didn't need to. <laughs> I just did it to make a point. Um, and I think the main thing I liked about this is this was, for me, a buddy comedy about this sloppy, emotional human with an accent like a makeshift shiv, as IG-88 says, 
and then this rigid analytical murder droid. And it's a total odd couple thing of like, they're both like, we just made this pact right now, but as soon as it's done, we're going to kill each other. But actually, we're kind of learning from each other and we kind of respect each other, but we would never admit that out loud. And we're kind of surprised that one another's better at things than we thought they would be. And it's just a fun little story. It works in this um, this world uh, of uh, bounty hunters and scoundrels and rogues that they happen upon the wrong Corellian freighter and it's uh, actually a gambling ship for the huts and that they get some Beskar and that's the most they can hope to get out of that and then they plan to bribe Fett with it. It's got this great like we are just scraping to get by. Of mm-hmm. we Every little failure will try to turn into a victory maybe for next time and it's yeah I just really like this one because the, the buddy comedy bounty hunter movie that I'd be happy to see someday. This is like the genesis of that. Oh yeah. You could make this a comic series. I, I totally would be, especially the way it ends with like a little bit of humor pops out of IG-88. ig eight's like, no, no, absolutely. There's no humor here. I, it's funny. I was at the couple of paragraphs in was like, are we going to get a mention of IG-11? Like is IG-88 mm. there? And there was some stuff going into season one of Mandalorian where it's like, don't call IG-11 IG-88. He hates that. And it never really factored into the, the show. But uh, I like that idea. So I, I was wondering, too. Didn't get it, but uh, one day we might. Yeah, but I mean, Beskar, I know, has been around forever, but now it is so prominent because of the Mandalorian. It was fun to, to hear it in this other context. That's so true. No, you're right about that. That's a different, maybe a different uh, conversation on the legacy of Mandal- the Mandalorian program. Beskar was around. You could study it, look it up, but now it is uh, almost every sentence. <laughs> yeah, now it's that point of like Mandalorian is so popular that, you know, people who are not hardcore Star Wars fans are like, yeah, Beskar, I know about that. <laughs> yeah, which is great, by the way. It's great. It's Absolutely. It's wonderful. Get Beskar out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to our next story is Bespin Escape by Martha Wells. Uh, this is a debate in between an Ugnot clan in Ugnot town about how or if to flee uh, from the Empire as they begin to take over Cloud City. What did you think of this one? I, I described this one to myself and now to all of you as a touching story of Ugnaught loyalty, corruption, and a good look at the working class beneath the city. And Cloud City is 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 definitely divided. It, there's that surface, there's that uh, opulence up top, and then those be beneath it that make it all valuable, make it all work. Uh, and, that, and that's something that um, you can find in real life, too, I guess. So I like that. Uh, and, and and interested to explore a little bit more with the Ugnaughts and how they stay with their their clans, right? They're, they're, uh, they they kind of divided in the houses in, in, in a way, if you will. So I, I did like a lot about that uh, and, and, and um, you know, learning more about the Ugnaughts. Yeah, I like the picture of the Ugnaught clans and the uh, the influential, you know, elders of the clan and the people mm-hmm. that the, the Ugnaughts that nobody ever listens to that do the actual work and all that kind of uh, great just world building stuff. This is another um, story that did not dire- directly reference Queel, but it is definitely a different experience to read this after we spent quality mm-hmm. time with an Ugnaught and really felt the pain of Queel's journey to not be in servitude. Uh, I felt that, you know, earlier when we had the Ugnaught uh, sous chef, (laughs) but since this one was all about the Ugnaught clan and this really specific like push pull between the empire is going to enslave us, like things are only okay for us right now, but they're going to enslave us harshly. We have to get out of here. And the, the other side of it, of some of the Ugnaughts trying to be like, you know, will it really be that bad? We'll still just be doing the same job and maybe we'll make a little bit more money. And, it, you know, it makes you question 
again, how hard it is to escape, you know, a, a monster like the empire and us knowing going like, yeah, no, we know from Quill, they're not going to treat you well at all. You got to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I really enjoyed this one for that Ugnot perspective. Uh, moving on, we're going to go to Faith in an Old Friend by Brittany N. Williams. This is the story of kind of the Falcon's journey uh, through Empire Strikes Back. Not all of it, but big chunks of it. As told by the Millennium Collective, the three droid brains uh, that, uh, that animate the Falcon computer. And one of those brains is, of course... L337. So this was kind of a big deal story of what are L337's actual thoughts uh, now that she is a part of the Falcon. What did you think of this one, Ken? Yeah, Brittany and Williams did a great job with this one. I think there there could, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on this one if you're, if you're picking it up and, and, and connect this new character to an old movie. Uh, and we all know, hey, you know, you know 3PO, I need you to speak, speak to the Falcon and 3PO's got some thoughts on the Falcon's dialect and and that's great and that's cute. Um, but L3 becomes this real character now. And some people had some very strong opinions about what happened to the character. And we've discussed that here on Force Center. You can go back and listen to some of those episodes. And I think I think the author, Brittany Williams, uh, in, in her own way, addressed that. Uh, I also thought, uh, you know, um, Mer Lafferty did in the, in the solo novelization. And L3 is one of her favorite characters and answered that. And so because of that, all, all that to say, I thought L3 maintained who she was while accepting or at least working through what happened to her, uh, which included, you know, getting shot and destroyed and, and put into the Falcon, uh, not by her choice. Uh, I forget the, I didn't pull out the exact sentence, but she dresses that in a way and just becoming something new and, and teaching these other droid brains, ED4 and VF5, uh, VF5T uh, to be a little bit more find who they are as an identity. I don't know. It, it was, it worked for me on those kind of levels. I really like this one. Plus it is Treadwell and Treadwell becomes a hero. Uh, <laughs> I like, I like that stuff. I just thought it was a great handling of L3. I did too. I thought this was just absolutely quality time with L3. It was great to, to hear. Uh, I think what's so great about her character is this droid who is very aware of no, I am. I'm a totally aware being. I want to evolve. I can evolve. I built this body for myself, and I want to keep evolving. And it's it's undeniable that you know in Solo, there's there's plenty of conversation to have uh, around exactly how the story is told, what the story is, all those things. Uh, but ultimately, it is a story uh, about uh, so about this character who is this droid who is full of life. So it was great to see that life of. Hey, I came into this uh, computer, mm. and it says in in the story of it seems like L three made some amount of peace to it because like I she says I sacrificed myself to save him to save Lando, mm. um, and and that really you know uh, plays up their connection and the power of that uh, relationship uh, that there is a sincere bond between them. Uh, but then that great picture that she gives life to the other uh, the other computers who are kind of sentient but not really they didn't have emotions or words to talk about them or a sense of identity and it's just such a great star wars um idea i think star wars cares so much about individuals matter we we make choices and our choices affect other people and we need to be true to ourselves uh but we're also a part of this collective that's that's uh, in our actions affect one another and i love that this is just this 
kind of weird, beautiful. It's three droid brains in the computer of a fictional ship. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's still powerful to me because it is about that mm-hmm. idea that the individual matters, but so does the whole. And I love that they, you know, describe themselves as the Millennium Collective and and have this growing humanity. Yeah, that's a great line. She she'd refused to lose her own name and had made sure the others had theirs too. And I don't know, that just to me captures a lot of what I've uh, come to, to love about L3 as a character. And then it worked, uh, it worked here reading that. Yeah. And that they have these characters V V five T the transport droid that was put on all uh, YT 1300 freighters and ED for a corporate espionage slicer droid uploaded sometime before Lando had the ship. Yeah. Uh, just a great, a bunch of great fun details. I like that she's like, yeah, 3PO, chatty. That's the word you need to know for him. I like just that drive-by line of R2 stops by for chat sometimes. That, of course, yes. R2 would be like, yeah, I'm taking a break uh, from work. Uh, how, how, how are the three of you? How's the Millennium Collective today? Like, yeah. Such an R2 line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and then it was just touching to actually see Lando enter the ship, right? And yeah, yeah. Um, have and salute the empty co-pilot seat and say to himself, never gamble with something you can't bear to lose and really get to see through whatever else Lando is that he is sad that he parted with L3, that he regrets it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. And again, you could just be looking at uh, canon answers and, and, and we get some, right. But it's really more about that. I think this whole book, uh, I, I, uh, last time around three years ago, it was a little bit more of like, Ooh, canon, canon answers, but now it's just a more and more open to the emotions of it. And this one worked for me as uh, as, as an ode to L3. Yeah. Great emotional canon uh, to deal with that relationship between L3 and Lando. And most importantly, uh, L3 enjoying her existence on the falcon moving on to the next story do on batu by rob hart this is the story of wilrow hood how could we have a book like this without a whole story devoted to wilrow hood what did you think ken yeah man here you go right this is when i think it's funny i think when the star wars from a certain point of view book was announced everyone was like oh can't wait till we get the wilrow hood story in empire here we go. Rob Hart's got the pressure on him to make it happen. And I thought it did work. Uh, I thought it was a story of a, of, a, of a working class person needing to make sometimes maybe wrong choices, tough choices, difficult choices just for survival. Again, another look at the working class. A, a great line about uh, Bespin kind of Cloud City being made up of uh, the people who build the machines and get rich off of that but don't know how to work them. Uh, uh-huh. row down here. Uh, I thought that was uh, that was great. Uh, at times uh, with uh, the secondary character, not secondary, but the other Bexley, Bexley, the cloud car pilot. Yeah. Um, at times uh, here, like this was maybe an over, just kind of an over-involved, lot of wrinkles story about uh, Wilrow Hood. But but at, the more I thought about that, of like, wow, this is going. There's a lot going on with the Wilrow Hood as he runs by, and you do touch upon that moment, and I love that moment. I, I, this was a story worthy of a legend. Will Hood has become a legend in Star Wars. <laughs> and a lot of people, a lot of fans, and I know in Legends there was more to his story. I totally get that. But this is our first real modern canon, modern era time with him. And I it really, I, I love this character even more, man. I love this guy. And I was disappointed he didn't end up on Batu because I was, I was going to try to find a way to work into having Wilbur Hood actually be at Anaheim or Orlando. <laughs> well, you know, he, he might be having a whole different great career now that he has got away from Cloud City in this story. Yeah, 
I like that this one ultimately was just a little picture of, all right, who is Wilro Hood? Yeah, you know, like, because there are definitely some fun jokes. There's a joke about this ice cream that he likes on uh, Batu, <laughs> yeah. right? Which ca- connects back to the Cam Tono being an ice cream maker. This is another place where you felt uh, the presence of Mandalorian that it was like, of course, it's a Cam Tono. We know that now. That's the name for it. And it's a container. So let's let's go for that in modern canon. I, I just like that it was ultimately he's a Wilro Hood monitors pressure levels in a reactor stock. He's, you know, attracted to this uh, cloud car pilot, kind of wants, a, a, you know, a more mysterious, interesting life. And it's just like, so Wilro's Hood's just this workaday guy trying to get lucky in love and maybe smuggling. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's just who he is. And I think the other thing that I liked about it is like, yeah, I agree with you, the kind of the convolutions of the plot of he's got the Camtono, he loses the Camtono, he's trying to escape like everybody in the back half of this book from Bespin. <laughs> Yeah. But I really liked the, to me, the elegance of the Camtono of he didn't know what was in it, but he knew that after he dropped it, it rattled. And yeah. I was kind of waiting. I, I think this, I think books like this are a gift and a curse because they tell you so many quote unquote answers. And sometimes that's great if you like the answers. And sometimes it's just like, let's strip the mystery from everything. Let's know what every character is thinking at every second. Let's know the backstory of every character in this random frame. And it was a breath of fresh air in the midst of that to be like, we don't know what's in that Camtono. We don't even really know if it's broken. And maybe we never will. It's like, great. I need a little bit of mystery right now. And this one delivered. That, sir, is no MacGuffin. Yeah, no, uh, a good classic MacGuffin indeed. And I agree with you. Because I, 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 I wanted the answer. Of course I want the answer. I'm like, oh, press, press the buttons. Open it. Let me see. What is it? And I thought it was going to be ice cream or something. Um, <laughs> who knows? But yeah, I, I agree with you. I like that. Uh, much like Veers in this uh, book, uh, is he dead or alive? We didn't get that final answer. I, I like it. I like uh, still wondering. Yeah, yeah. Keeping a little bit of mystery. Uh, so good job on Will Row Hood, the new and continuing adventures of Will Row Hood. Uh, moving on to Into the Clouds by Karen Strong. This is a very interesting one, I thought. This is a story of uh, Jay Lynn. Uh, the, the daughter of a, a wealthy um, a trader, I think, uh, and Dresh, uh, the roguish pilot on her father's ship, and a little adventure they have together on Cloud City. What did you think of this one? I thought this was a great little story because it's it's a good in-store use of the legend of Leia, Leia being this princess and just known, and, 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 and Jay Lynn seeing Leia in action, and it's a story of choice, and... Her, this, it's a love story too, or a, a, you know, a simmering love story with her and Dresh. There's some stuff going on there too, but just that her, uh, I, you're right. I do need to pick a side, and I'm choosing the side that doesn't shoot at princesses, and and that's the Star Wars mm. theme ties to the bigger theme. And and I was this is one of the ones where you know this is a completely new character. You don't see her in the background, but you know, and to use Leia's dress, um, that that. We we focus on the Endor dress a lot, and we got a little bit of the answers of um, in Forces of Destiny of how Leia gets the dress on Endor, right? Da, 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 da. Yeah. But this one, I've always thought about this dress too. Like, is she just is there stuff in the Falcon? Was this part of what was loaded up from Hoth? Uh, and the fact that uh, this dress came from Cloud City, uh, I've always, I like that answer. But to use that and to see a character in story look at Leia and get inspiration from Leia, like so many others in our real world. Uh, I thought that was a that was an interesting take, and there's also some good stuff on on the the workings of the outer rim and how well it, the empire's found the outer rim in a way now. 
Yeah, no, I really like that. No, but I, I'm right there with you with the dress. I always, I think, just kind of assume that that Lando is like, here's a here's a great mm-hmm. dress. Here's here's some Cloud City fashion. But I like the specificity that there's literally a store, and that the uh, tailor would be bragging like, yeah, it was different colors, but I just sold the same dress to the Princess of Alderaan, you know, who is this symbol of you know both being this dangerous wanted rebel and this intriguing survivor of a doomed world and also this elegant rich woman and all these different ideas that people could attach to Leia from the outside and the idea that a tailor would just say like it's Leia's dress she's staying in the royal Bespin hotel you know which is yes I, I love getting those pictures of like oh yeah no cloud city is city so those buildings aren't just like tower a tower b that's the royal Bespin hotel is really cool yeah. Um, but then I think the thing I was really affected by is this another was another one that felt a little bit to me like playing with that idea of fans fantasize about being in Star Wars. So what would that really be like? Because this great character of Jalen is is you know in their world kind of cosplaying Leia. She you know she's like all right fine yeah. the dress is beautiful I'll dress up uh, as Leia. I know that Leia must be much more complex than people think of her because I know I'm complex. I know I'm not yeah. just you know, this one thing that people see, I'm not just the wealthy daughter of this well-to-do guy. And then she's got this potential boyfriend who's fulfilling the Han role of like, yep. you know, roguish dress who's, you know, it doesn't dress nice, but clearly has a good heart and, you know, cheats at cards maybe. And taking that sort of fantasy of playing Leia with your boyfriend Han and then turning it into, but, but these are real world decisions there, the this fantasy of living inside Star Wars also means dealing with the nightmare of uh, your whole world is coming apart. And no amount of money is going to protect you because this awful force of the Empire is coming for you. Right. And it goes from kind of playing dress up as Jalen, uh, dress up as Leia and fantasizing about having your Han boyfriend too. Well, the truth of that is you'd have to choose a side and, you, and you'd have to choose it well. Yeah. And she takes a shot at a stormtrooper too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She takes him. To, yeah. She gets to she gets to uh, really feel what it's like uh, to to be this complex person that Leia is. And we get to see how complex she is, too. Yeah. So, yeah, this is this was a big win for me. I like this one. Yeah. Like this one a lot. I'm moving on to one of the longer stories in this second half. Uh, the Witness by Adam Christopher. Uh, this is the story of one of the stormtroopers uh, who are in Vader's personal guard on Bespin, uh, and it was kind of billed when it was uh, teased, really, uh, mm-hmm. when they announced all the stories, is this is the story of a stormtrooper who overhears a fateful conversation uh, during a duel on Cloud City. Uh, so, yeah, that's the story. Ken, what did you think? I, yeah, um, good look at the fanatics inside the Empire. There's, uh, there's great stuff about... Um of the other stormtrooper FS four, five, one. There it is. Uh, yeah. Who refuses to have any other name, but that, um, um, and how I, I, I bring this up a lot. I am sorry to everyone. I bring this up a lot, but this, this narrative has, has definitely emerged since 2014 on once we started getting new, actually new star of star Wars stories in this era of showing the complete picture of the other side of people in the empire. And I hear, I hear a lot of, well, not everyone was bad in the empire. And that is, that is true because I always cite the example of Bodhi Rook uh, who had just had a job, but it's way more, it's way more deeper than that. It's way more nuanced at times, but it's also even more just cut and dry than people want to give, give it credit for. And this is some cut and dry. You had, do have a group of stormtroopers who, 
who who are going through some things and and learning some stuff and finding out how much they want to be involved with this anymore. And, and that's the character of Dina. And, and that does there's a lot of powerful stuff. And so on the flip side is that th- there's probably a lot more FS four five ones in the Empire who are like, yep, on board for this abuse of power. And I thought that was um, I thought that was really good. I thought that worked for me in, in the store. Some solid themes. Some of the other stuff, the actual witness to the Luke and Vader fight was, I will say, a tough sell for me. Yeah, um, I think I would. This was one that I wasn't looking forward to because uh, it was a little longer, and sometimes those are harder when you're you're reading all these stories right uh, one after the other. Uh, is I needed to do to to finish the book in time for the review, um, and also like I really wasn't sure about the stormtrooper overhearing uh, Luke and Vader. Thought that was maybe going to be a little too cute. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that I really, really liked this story. Good. The stuff that you were talking about that you enjoyed, this picture of different perspectives of the Empire, uh, it really took them to a, a different level that I really enjoyed. And that, for me, made up for the, like, yeah, I don't know if I need a a Stormtrooper of any kind, you know, uh, lurking behind some machinery during the duel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 does, it dances into that Forrest Gump inserted into history, digitally kind of uh, weird energy. Um, yeah. But I really like that uh, this great character of Dina Lauren didn't actually hear uh, the father thing, mm-hmm. you know, knew that like, wow, there's I was right. It's almost more the overhearing takes the place of I was right to question the Empire as I just did in, in this terrifying way, because yeah. even the even the Empire, even Vader, that's just like, yeah, no, he's an unstoppable killing machine, mysterious sorcerer. He's even more powerful than I realized. And he's got even more going on than I realized. He's not telling the full truth. Why is he? Why isn't he just cutting this kid down? What the hell's going on here? And introduces those uh, mysteries from Dina Lawrence's perspective that validate her choice to terrifyingly in this moment run away from the Empire. Yeah, and it didn't. It didn't get cute. When it, you're right, it could have gotten cute, and I think we were both uh, worried about that coming in. Right, and fair to say. Um, it didn't get cute. Uh, and, and, and I like that it, 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 it's all in that theme. There's that great observation of like, you, you just kind of touched upon of, of her just like, Whoa, Whoa, Vader's stopping. Vader, Vader, Vader could just cut him down. And he's not what's going on here. And so it all ties in. And, and like I said, it, it, I love the themes in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I like the big picture thing that it, 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 again, it shows how hard it is to deal with, uh, something like the empire, but how hard it is to walk away from the inside. And I love that as many characters we meet has the, oh, wow, uh, Alderaan. Yeah, I, I can't find the justification for that. I don't buy it. But in that great line, we're like, and that was three years ago. And I'm still trying to figure this out, you know, and I know I'm right next to Vader, who is, you know, incredibly dangerous at all times to be near. And then, yeah, that contracts of FS451, who is a fanatic who enjoys pain. It's not just like, I like order and I have been, uh, I think the empire is actually a good government and they do bring order and I'm rich. So I don't see the pain or I, you know, kind of bought the propaganda. He's somebody who sees that the empire loves to deliver pain. And I love that, that beat where he's, we learn that he cheers for, you know, Alderaan being destroyed. And there's a great storytelling beat in empire strikes back where, Han says that, you know, they never even asked me any questions. And, you know, we realize that Vader just knows hurting Luke's friends will will draw him. Uh, so we know the answer. But I love this detail that FS451 uh, is not just an Imperial fanatic. He is he's 
somebody who enjoys inflicting pain and he loved hurting Han without knowing the reason. It was great to hurt him, you know? Yeah, no, that worked really well for Dina. Just be like, all right, you know, I get it. We sometimes have to do this to get information and everything. And and, and this is way beyond that and just kind of seeing it. And I, and I, and, the, and the realistic take of, like you said, the, uh, the great reveal of that uh, was three years ago. That's pretty powerful to be like, yeah, you're still around and, and there's a, you know, and a good reason why, meaning like you, it's, it's tough. Like you said, it's yeah. like, it's like the halls of the uh, executor <laughs> hard to get out of. <laughs> yeah. And I love toward the end when she uh, considers taking that pot shot at Vader and realizes that's an empty gesture and I kind of, you know, gets found by Lobot and the other security guards and has that, you know, I'll, I'll live to fight another day. Is a great, uh, great surprise. I really enjoyed this one and the length just, it just flew past because it, it grabbed me right away and, and pulled me through. So I thought this one was great. Good stuff. Uh, moving on. The Man Who Built Cloud City by Alexander Freed. Alexander Freed, we're big fans of him. Yeah. I think his prose is great. It is so visceral. He he writes the war of Star Wars incredibly well. This was a very fun, very different story about a character uh, allegedly named King Yathros Condorius I, who uh, appears to be a... a person who uh does not have uh, uh money uh and we learn a lot about how on Bespin you need money uh but is also not actually working and is just sort of lurking about uh cloud city in the belief that he is an ancient king descendant of uh nobility from the Anoit system and that it's his responsibility that he turned Bespin into a uh paradise and then he has an adventure what do you know escaping from Bespin <laughs> what did you think of this one Ken? So, yeah, I really liked this one. There, there was a part of me that was like, oh, hey, sure. And, and first of all, um, you know, first of all, um, uh, for Alexander Freed, we're so used to the very specific details, right? The the temperature of the X-Wing cockpit, all those kind of things. Like, he went in a different direction with this. Like, I liked it. I, I loved seeing just a different side of his writing. I So I like this one on a, on a personal level. It's a, it's a touching story. It shows Lando's good side because this is kind of, uh, you know, to, to be blunt, kind of like the crazy town vagrant in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and who thinks he's a king. He's it's, uh, I don't know. I maybe think of the Fisher King with Rob Williams at one point of just like, what's going on. There's some, 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 some mental issues here, some untreated conditions, something, but, but that he Lando in the craziness of all this, sends someone to save him. Right. Basically. Yeah. I don't want to get too into it, but as as a as a former security director of of two big properties in Los Angeles, there was one I I dealt with, uh, which is the, the farmers market, which is a historical location. And on that property, uh, the, one of the tenants is the Grove, which is Rick Caruso, very big, uh, rich lifestyle center. The fountains from the same people that built it to the Bellagio, and it's opulent, and celebrities go there. And every single day for the three and a half years I worked there, I mean, every single day I had to deal with um, uh, a homeless population that was there for various different reasons. And there was varying levels and degrees of, of, of hardships that they, they felt and they had to be dealt with at times. And sometimes it got bad and sometimes it was violent and sometimes I would sit down as a security director and just have a conversation with a 70-year-old senile woman who was wearing a suit she's been wearing for 30 years and and try to not have her 
cause problems to the folks shopping at, uh, you know, uh, you know, Chanel or some, some kind of, <laughs> and, and, and so this story on that level spoke to me and, and, and uh, I could discuss it somewhere else on the knapsack class or something like it, it, it worked on that level and made me Lando is the good, a good hearted scoundrel. He is a good hearted smuggler, much like his buddy Han and all that work to, to paint, uh, not to take away off of uh, the main character, but to paint uh, a good picture for Lando in my heart. Yeah, and in this uh, wing guard, the uh, Bespin security yeah. guard, Darbus Miz, uh, he really is like, yeah, he's a he's a security guard, and yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't have that security guard experience, but uh, similar for me when I worked at uh, Kinko's in downtown Minneapolis at that time, uh, you know, businesses were still doing uh, big, expensive, fancy color printing to sell you know, million dollar ideas. So it was uh, high pressured corporate people coming in, you know, saying I need these fanciest copies ever so I can sell more things. And then it was, you know, people who were down on their luck uh, in from different ways. And there was that real intersection of, hey, I'm here trying to make even more money than I already have. And hey, I'm, I, I don't even understand, you know, I don't understand why I, somebody needs a copy of this form and or how to make it, but I need yeah, it's th- this one was really interesting because it's really hard to not think of it in real world terms and it's you know mm-hmm. complex, um, mm-hmm. but I think uh, what you're pulling out of it, I pulled the same thing out of of empathy, yeah, of the in empathy for somebody who is having a, a a difficult time, and that's what I thought was really interesting about this story is. It, you know, implied that uh, Yathros went through some horrific tragedy that he really lost a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand it's a really complex real world um, situation. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, uh, it, this one's kind of hard to talk about in some ways. So I guess I, I'll keep to the story. Mm-hmm. In the story, I thought it was interesting that it did definitely seem like Yathros was partially disconnected from reality. Yeah. but partially made that choice. And I like that that's what the story came around to because it tied into these Star Wars themes, that big Last Jedi theme about needing legends. And everybody in this back half of this book is desperately escaping Bespin. And I like that this turned into a story of Yathro saying, you know, maybe it's okay that we don't because if we believe what we want to about ourselves, that I am a disposed king and you are a deadly assassin who will do anything to save my to save your king to restore the former glory of Bespin that's what people need to believe they need that romance they need that legend mm-hmm. to fight back against the horrors that are coming and that was a really interesting and really fun um it was a, in some ways a really dark story mm-hmm. that ended on this beat of hope without actually using the word hope again yeah, yeah, that was good. No, yeah, yeah, I really did like this one. Um, really did like this one, uh, and 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 just uh, Yathros being treated like a like a human is uh, is, is is important. Absolutely, yeah, and having uh, his perspective, you know, respected and having empathy and coming around to these these big ideas of uh, let's stay and fight, really, you know, and that was cool, uh, especially connecting back to knowing that. Bespin's going to be occupied for a little while uh, until the Aftermath book. All right. Moving on to our next story, almost wrapped up with all these stories, uh, The Backup Backup Plan by Anne Toole. Uh, this one is a story of Tal Viridian, a, an associate of Lando, 
uh, who uh, gets left behind as well and lures the mining guild to Bespin in a bid to sort of play the mining guild against the Empire and therefore escape. Uh, then shenanigans of many kinds ensue. What did you think of this one, Ken? I did like this one. I really did. I, I have to admit, I was uh, this was one of those like cramming for a test at the end. I was like, let me let me let me read this one here. Um, and I like it. You got Tal and you got uh, was it Ella? Uh, Ella, yeah. Ella, a, a, an Imperial, um, not double agent, but maybe an Imperial defector. There's some stuff going on there, and a great story, and a great story. This one was almost too big for the book, meaning. Give Antool uh, a, a, a comic series because <laughs> the mining guild, and that's a pretty big thing with, you know, because Lando's trying to avoid the mining guild, but try to avoid the empire and all those kind of things that ties into Lando, the Baron administrator. And so to kind of uh, tie that all in, um, and again, kind of, I'll say it, a touchy, touchy uh, love story with some hologram activities that. Uh, <laughs> All right, yeah, gotcha. Okay, leave the boots on. Uh, so that, that it was it was a is interesting. So no, I this this really worked, and it just was like I said, you're expecting little tiny corners of the Star Wars story, and I thought uh, this was a a bigger story almost. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Uh, this one is uh, notable for ending on a uh, hollow sex uh, phone call between <laughs> a, an Imperial and an escaping. Uh, you know, uh, I, I guess what what's the right word for the character of Tal, a survivor, a thriver? Yeah, somebody who's gonna I find know. their way in the galaxy. Yeah, I like that. Um, a what? I said thriver. I like that. I like that. A thriver, a thriver. Yeah, uh, I I agree. This one was a little bit longer, and it I I enjoyed the story. It did suffer for me just from its placement in the book because, mm-hmm. uh, again, there the there was that repetition of some of these stories being the characters facing the, this similar conflict of uh, how to get off, uh, how to escape Bespin. I really like the Mining Guild stuff because, yeah, the Mining Guild has popped up in other Star Wars storytelling now. It's just a random, you know, throwaway back in 1980 of, uh, of Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it, so I liked playing that up of like, ooh. And it got into the, some of the Outer Rim politics, which also yeah. ties a little bit to maybe what's going on in The Mandalorian of, you know, when the Empire turns its eye to the Outer Rim. That might be, you know, a, a bigger problem for people in the core worlds and sometimes they think about. So it touched on all those big ideas. Yeah, and then I thought it was just, it, it was a, a fun story uh, about yet another perspective on the Empire too of like, I didn't get really the thought that Ella was like, Alderaan was wrong and I don't want to be involved. It's like, she had a fling. She had a relationship with Tal. Mm-hmm. She didn't like her superior and she agreed with her, you know, her lover Tal to fake her death. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was it was strangely, you know, humanizing because it, it wasn't just the, you know, the Empire is wrong. It was like, I like that. Uh, I like Tal <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, don't like my boss. So, yeah, I'll fake it. Sure. Throw me some credits. Maybe. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fun uh, and interesting and different story. Moving on to our penultimate story. Right Hand Man by Lydia Kang. Uh, this is the story of the droid 21B giving Luke Skywalker his new hand. This just demonstrates the just uh, surprising twists and turns of this book that we can go from a couple stories in a row that are characters we've never met having, you know, cool adventures within a world we know to a really a big moment in Star Wars, 21B and Luke Skywalker. Uh, interacting and processing his uh, physical and emotional loss. It's a big deal. 
Mm. Uh, one of my favorite stories. Uh, interesting to note that the author, Lydia Kagan, is a practicing physician. So a lot of the medical stuff in here rang pretty darn true for a reason. Uh, she's also author of many young adult novels and more. Um, so loved it. I, I got to say, Joe, one absolutely one of my favorites. One I, w- I will want to revisit uh, again and again. And one, I was like, could you shoot this as a short film? <laughs> uh, yeah. Really? And, yeah. Get Mark Hamill to do the voice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, the importance uh, of a lot of things. There's a lot of trauma recovery and, and those big themes and stuff for Luke and what Luke's going through. Uh, uh, but the importance of accepting help was one that really jumped out of me. Um, the back that can only go so far in a way you gotta, you gotta kind of work with it. Uh, and it was also the science and spiritual nature of healing working together. Uh, something I'm, I'm kind of there for um, and, and speaks to me and, 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 and that kind of worked. And, and, and this idea, there's a little, I guess you could say it's a canon detail if you want to take it that way, but it's a, it's really an emotional detail. Luke's pain is always going to be there. He's always going to feel that hand. It's always there. And I made me think of Last Jedi Luke right away. I love that. Oh yeah, yeah that 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 he's always uh, these demons don't go away. They just need to be wrestled with and dealt with mm-hmm. as they come up, as they resurface sometimes. Yeah, this was full of uh, fun little canon details, uh, but it was also just it, there was a depth to it and a poetry to it, and it just great. I love the detail that uh, Luke requested to one B, you know, because that's always been a fun thing too. If they kind of as deep as it is, it has some fun jokes, and I like that. Like, how many more times am I going to see you? Because that could be a playground sitting in the bar joke about Empire Strikes Back too. Of like, that's the same droid, right? <laughs> is that yeah. droid getting sick of putting Luke back together? Uh, so I liked that that was actually a part of it, and it speaks to Luke. You know, there's some stuff early in the book about the pilots really respecting and, and looking up to Luke uh, because he was kind and treated everybody with respect, and that idea of like Luke being like that particular medical droid was, was really good to me on Hoth. Could, could I see that droid for this painful thing was said a lot about Luke to me. Yeah. Um, I, it's really powerful that, you know, that idea of like, yeah, you, I don't want painkillers because, uh, my, my pain is emotional. So painkillers maybe aren't going to help, but also just diving a little bit into that very, hard real world thing of sometimes physical pain can distract you from emotional pain. And like that, almost like that he wants to feel it, you know? Oh and yeah. Two one B gently, uh, uh, pushing back on that. And that idea that you were talking about that revelation that Bach is organic and you actually need to work with it. You need to cooperate with it <laughs> yeah. in order for it to work is a very star Wars idea. Um, in yeah, this big idea of Luke wrestling with not getting the hand as a kind of penance, mm-hmm. um, and really reflecting on the idea of like, is this what Yuda was trying to tell me with the, with crude matter? We're not, you know, we are truly luminous beings and, and maybe I need that reminder. I can still wield the force uh, without a hand and, and maybe I shouldn't get it. And the uh, additional emotional, um, not only dealing with the revelation of Vader being his father, uh, but blaming himself for failing Han. I almost said Han because I'm used to it at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Um, but I thought that was particularly powerful because that's always clear of like, yeah, Luke went there to rescue his friends and he ended up needing to be rescued, but really blaming himself for like, I don't know if Han's going to survive, uh, you know, or if we can find him, you know, or what's going to, is, is Jabba going to take him out of the uh, carbonite and kill him, 
and beating himself up for that was really powerful to hear after all these years specifically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, gosh, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, you touched on a lot. And yeah, and, and yeah, Luke's uh, feelings for Leia changing and kind of it being documented by 2-1-B in a way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that his heart rate uh, wasn't rising in the same way. Yeah, and again, I talked about like the science and the spiritual coming together, but the force is not in the repertoire of my medical databanks, says 2-1-B, but uh, wondering, kind of wondering aloud, uh, or, or wondering um, uh, inside inside his droid brain about, you know, uh, these creatures. They're always off fighting, but it's us on, on the droids, the droids on the medical ships and the crew on the ships who put you back together to go fight. Uh, is that the force at work? Uh, perhaps he didn't know. I, I love that kind of stuff, deep philosophical stuff. Um, it was just beautiful. It was really beautiful for for, for and, it, and it drove home to me. Empire is is heralded as the dark chapter of the story, right? Yeah. And, and you know, Luke is beat up through most of the movie. Our hero keeps crashing. Our hero keeps needing to be rescued, and our hero is 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 now missing a hand. Like we know that, but it drove that point home by inserting a real just kind of new level of hope at the end of that scene of them staring out Leia and the droids and Luke. It, it, we, you and I've talked about when these books, when the stories really work, you'll never be able to watch a scene in the movie and not think about this. I'll be thinking yeah. about this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, that's where there's so many great uh, details and perspectives, but where it really came home was it was about this idea of, uh, connecting the uh, the physical, the crude matter to the luminous, connecting the uh, emotional to the corporeal. Tuum B even says that, which is, you know, a real discussion in, in the real world that he knows as a droid, there is an actual medical connection between the emotional and the corporeal, like how you're feeling does actually affect how you recover. Uh, and I feel like that theme just this beautiful little dance between them really gets pulled out. We get to see uh, Luke treat 2-1-B as an equal. And when he does that, 2-1-B is like, I, I think I'm just doing my normal sympathy programming, but it's bringing out, this conversation with him is bringing out something more than the sum of its parts. It's like elevating me from the physical to the emotional, to the luminous. So Luke is kind of doing that for 2-1-B. And then on the other uh, uh, side, not the other hand, uh, 2-1-B really helps Luke see his hand in a different way, right? That it's, it's mm -hmm. a tool, and you can see it as it's a mechanical hand. You can see it as penance. But look, the truth of our physical bodies is they always evolve. Your body is never the same as it was a day ago, a year ago. It's natural to change. This is an evolution, and you get to decide what it means. So mm -hmm. it's like Luke kind of gets 2-1-B to appreciate the luminous and 2-1-B kind of helps Luke find the luminous in, in the physical. And I thought that was just really beautiful. Yeah, that worked. That worked. Yeah. Uh, my last thought on this one too is, you know, uh, I like to think of Luke's lost hand and the way he looks at it and compares it to Vader in Return of the Jedi. And that big moment is it's not a symbol that losing a part of your body means you lose humanity it's more this symbol of uh, this is this is a scar and and war brings scars. And I feel like this sets that up in a really great way where 2-1-B says, this is just an evolution. This is your new hand and it can mean whatever you think it means. And in Return of the Jedi, that, that moment is, this is what it means. It, it's, it means this is a scar. And if, if I go down this road, 
uh, I'll be nothing but scars. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely love this one. That means we're on to our final story, The Wills Strike Back by Tom Engelberger. Uh, This corresponds to the one that I believe was in, from a certain point of view, A New Hope, that had uh, the idea that the story was being presented by The Wills, but then was doing in a very meta, very fun way, just kind of poking fun at the idea of Star Wars storytelling, and that's what this one is. It's uh, The Wills are attempting uh, to say the opening crawl, and then they're being poked fun at by a voice that understands not only Star Wars, uh, but our real world, because they make some Star Trek jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Starfleet stuff. Um, on Tuesday's episode, I made a, a jokey reference to that. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so this one happened. It's there. It's the end of the book. We got to the end. <laughs> Ken, how do you feel about this one? Uh, yeah, you're funny. I'm all for some uh, good uh, jokes and poking fun. I think I just in my head, and I know I know they did this one before too. But I I I think I, especially for Empire Strikes Back, I would actually love to hear the wills and and some thoughts about Star Wars storytelling that aren't just jokes. Yeah, I think for me the things that I they do like about this is I you know I like this idea that it's the jokes are kind of predicated on that even the wills who have access to all known information must pick and choose what they share. So in that way, even they are potentially unreliable narrators because they are shaping the story in a, in a certain way. Uh, that idea is kind of floated in order to set up comedy uh, in, in its, I think Star Wars always has to be careful to not take itself too incredibly serious. So I like that it is poking fun at the opening crawl in the way that, that a real nitpicky fan could. Uh, but I agree with you. I think ultimately for me, the wills is something that's so fascinating that every time I come to this, um, uh, the two times, every time, the two times I've come to this, I'm like, oh, yeah, the wills. Oh, right. Jokes. <laughs> yeah. Same. Same. There's nothing against the author. I just say, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Stand up routine. Got it. Good. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And it is. It's just the it is the little uh, the little comedy uh, dessert at the yeah. end of the big, big meal that is this book. Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll be ready for it on Jedi. Yeah, ready for it on Jedi. So uh, let's uh, let's wrap up. Let's look back at this book a little bit. All told, did you enjoy it more or less than the first one? Do you have new thoughts on this general kind of shape of storytelling that these books are? I think I, I have new thoughts. I, I enjoy this. I'm looking forward to the Turn the Jedi one. I'll be excited when it comes out. Um, this is for me. I took a in in uh, my first year of college um, before I got my radio job and ditched education for what I thought was going to be a, a great long broadcasting career as a morning DJ. Uh, I took some photography classes, and this is uh, kids back in the day. You had to develop the film, you had to roll a film, twenty five, twenty six shots. And and I, my, I remember my photography teacher saying, "Look, you're going to take twenty five shots in the hopes that you get one." And this is these these this is the these these books are that to me. Uh, meaning, yeah, great authors coming in, taking big swings, fun stories. Some are going to connect with you. Some aren't. Some are going to feel like the answer you've wanted. Others are just going to fall a little flat or be on a nice little shelf uh, where you can you know just know they're there, um, almost like a collecting toys. That is them for me, and that is a little bit of a different take coming, uh, maybe going into the first one three years ago. Uh, and even coming out of that one, there's some really powerful storytelling in that, that, that you and I both love. Um, this one, I was a little more ready for that. Like, here we go. I'm sure there's going to be some wild, crazy ones that I don't like. Um, and I did love all of them. All the writing's great. But at the end of the day, this is a fun thing to put on uh, the shelf and pull from it uh, what you want. And that's 
a good thing. Yeah, I think that you get a well said. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, the uh, the truth of these books for me is in the title from a certain point of view. We get to see lots of different points of view from characters, uh, from authors, uh, from Star Wars fans, and some of them land really great. And others are like, oh, cool, really interesting to have that point of view. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> and I think that's fine. I think that is the uh, the power of, uh, of sharing lots of different points of view on a well-known story like Star Wars. So uh, out of all of the points of view, which... What kind of headcanon are you walking away? Which of these are you sort of adding to your own personal pile of of the myth of Star Wars? Right, uh, definitely the stuff with Yoda. A lot of stuff with like, the 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 truest duty, the Christy Golden Veers one, Rogue Two. A lot of those kind of ones just to analyze what it's like to fight for or against the Empire. Uh, the, the Yoda one, particularly the Yoda one of of um, of the, the first lesson of of uh, uh, going you know, directly to the moment where he decides to engage Luke and begin to train him really worked for me. Um, same with the virgins. I'll take that one virgins and even, and, and the Obi-Wan one, even, even though I, I question maybe some of it, uh, I want to put it all together and just analyze it along with some of the ones from the first book with Claudia Gray dealing with the uh, Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan and the, and, and the one with Obi-Wan passing was, was great too. So, and, and that's not the Yoda, the revelation that he wanted to train Leia from the first book. I'd love to take all of those and just kind of put them in one collection to be analyzed and, and to be uh, meditated upon. That would be good. And then the, the, the right-hand man, I, I absolutely want that one. Uh, you know, I, I joke a short film, but that one will stay with me. Yeah. That one's powerful. Yeah. I agree with a, a lot of that. There's a, a lot of great, uh, uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda and the meaning of the force uh, in, in that sort of uh, subset of Star Wars storytelling, a lot of great stuff that has come uh, out of these two books. I think for me, some things that, that will really stick with me, uh, Vader getting getting so lost in his own obsessive fantasy about how great it would be to have Luke kill Palpatine and that he could have everything he wanted. Padme would be back, his body would be back, but he'd still be a Sith. And thinking about that so hard that that Sheev is actually able to see it, to see Vader's fantasy of Luke killing him, uh, powerful and cool. Uh, the Murr of the Tauntaun story was great. I think I'm particularly connected to Leia's kindness, to Leia going to visit the Tauntauns and, and yeah, yeah. relating to them. Uh, even though I, some of the tone wasn't there for me in, in the Obi-Wan, a lot of the details were Obi-Wan realizing Anakin doesn't know how to swim. That's going to stick with me. I love that. Uh, love the confirmation of hobby flying into veers and the possibility there. Uh, the tragedy of captain cannon house, the, uh, the joke guy who gets, uh, destroyed in a hologram when the asteroid hits the star destroyer and that being tied to Ray Sloan and Mm -hmm. that being tied to this great story of captain cannon house who truly feels the pain of seeing exactly what the empire is philosophically. That's going to stick with me. The yeah. boss story was great. Bosk boss sister working with the Wookiees and boss making a promise. He can't keep to not hunt Wookiees. Uh, I love that. Mm. Dengar and IG 88 buddy comedy want it. I want to give myself go picture. Uh, I would love to see that. Fett thinking every target is a Jedi who got away. Will Rowe Hood trying to get lucky in love and life <laughs> with a, a mystery-filled Camtono. And, uh, and yeah, finally, the 2-1-B and, and Luke's great conversation as he, he comes to accept his new hand. Yes. Yeah. All, all great stuff. Those are the highlights for me that I'll be thinking about a lot. Any hopes for Return of the Jedi in three years? <laughs> three years from now. Uh, Force Center will be at its, uh, you know, uh, 2000th episode by then, we hope. 
Uh, yeah, you know what? Here's my expectations are: it won't be just uh, the insight I want to one of my favorite characters, Moff Gerard. It will also be the guy twelve rows back watching the Emperor land, and I'll I'll be I'll be more ready for that than I was even this time around. Yeah, I think we're going to spend a lot of time in Jabba's palace. Uh, it's going to be kind of new canon tales from Jabba's palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm excited for some Ewok perspective. I'll take a story written from the Ewok perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll take uh, the Ben Burt character, Colonel Dyer, uh, what he's thinking about before he uh, dies. Uh, I'd be up for Palpatine's thoughts while falling down the shaft. <laughs> there you go. That'll be all. And my final request is, of course, for Return of Jedi, uh, Ori Marco, a.k.a. Pruneface. Let's hear his inner oh, thoughts. Yeah. You got to get that one. Definitely. You yeah. got to have Ori Marco. All right. That is our big look at the second half of this book. Thank you all for listening. Ken, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at Force Center Pod. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube as well. Podcasts available in a lot of different spots. Check it out. Uh, Anchor, uh, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and now uh, Amazon Music. You get T-shirts and mugs and stickers, all the merchandise you need over at tpublic.com slash user slash Force Center. You can support us directly at patreon.com slash Force Center. You can follow me at Cadnapsock or go to my website, cadnapsock.com. And for you, Joseph. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joseph Scrimshaw. And for all my comedy adventures, you can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com. No, just josephscrimshaw.com. You don't need an at for websites, at least not yet. This is a long book, and I read about uh, a good third of it this morning. Anyway, for myself, for Ken, for all the great stories for which everyone's landed with you, this has been Four Center. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.